Welcome to this week's episode. I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. My guest this week is Evan Dorkin. He is the creator of Milk and Cheese. He's also the co-creator of Beasts of Burden. It is back and being published through Dark Horse Comics. This four-part miniseries is called Wise Dogs and Eldritch Men with art by Benjamin Dewey. Evan also has a series ongoing right now. It's a four-parter called Blackwood and just released on July 18th, a hardcover collection, 270 pages of the cult classic indie humor comic, Dork. Evan is a multi-Eisner award-winning creator and he is married to Sarah Dyer, who is also a creator. I mention this because she and his daughter will come up in our conversation because family is very important to Evan. And we'll learn a bit about Evan, about his career, about his influences, about some of the things we both like. And of course, he'll answer the questions that I ask all my guests, which Evan answered very thoroughly. And after the closing credits of the interview, after the music, I have some bonus material from the interview I want to share with you because sometimes life gets in the way. So I've included that, but I didn't want to have it in the interview as to not disrupt the flow of the conversation. And now on to my conversation with Evan Dorkin, who has Beasts of Burden, Wise Dogs, and Eldritch Men with art by Benjamin Dewey coming out August 22nd, and Blackwood issue number four coming out August 29th with art by Veronica Fish. So let's get started. Here now on Creator Talks. Evan, welcome to Creator Talks. Oh, hello. <laughs> Hi. Hard. I'm sorry. I thought you were talking to the listeners. So I missed that. <laughs> Boy, already I screwed up. No, it's okay. That's all right. <laughs> Hi. Thank you, Christopher. <laughs> You are a fan of comics, so let's begin there. Yes. Now, just as there are classic car enthusiasts who say, oh, I prefer a Chevy over a Ford or vice versa, and there are Elvis people and Beatle people, at least according to Mia Wallace of Pulp Fiction, you have tend to lean towards Marvel in the early years when you were growing up. Right. What were some of the first comics you read, and what turned you on to them? You said earlier when we were talking before the show that you're about the same age as I am. So newspaper comics, of course, were plentiful. They were everywhere. Everywhere you went, you could read a newspaper, uh, and a lot of magazines had comics in them, one-panel comics, or kids' magazines had full comics. I was getting a Children's Digest, which had reprints of Tintin. So early memories I have are of Peanuts and all the humor strips that were in newspapers in the late 60s, early 70s. Peanuts was huge. At some point, I picked up on Marvel Comics. I just fell in love with them. I went crazy for them. I wouldn't read DC, and I, I never really quite articulated to myself or my friends why I didn't like DC. I was just, DC is the enemy. I had friends who bought both or liked DC best, my friend Michael. But Marvel just appealed to me in a way that DC never did back then. Yeah, I think they had a little more realism to them back then, comparatively. Because I've gone back and read some... I started out reading Marvel, you know, going to the 7-Eleven. And I've gone back and started reading more DC now. I had a few back then, but not as many. And I don't know if it was just the characters themselves, the way they were written, having these subplots and continuing stories. I don't know what it was, but they seemed like they were written a little more for an older audience. They were. I mean, they were definitely hipper, whatever you want to say about Stan. In the 60s, he was definitely a lot hipper than the guys in ties and suits over at DC who were probably getting drunk on martinis every afternoon because they had to go back to the kryptonite minefield, you know, salt mines. There's a funny thing about DC Marvel Comics in the 60s that 
I really enjoy DC Comics from the 60s now. Not just the art, but some of the flippant writing uh, in Lois Lane and how just like Robert Kaniger, who I dislike as a human being, actually I dislike him as a writer too, from interviews and stuff, uh, he would just write the same scripts over and over for all his books. I had to read The Metal Men when I was going to do a Metal Men series for DC, and I've always loved The Metal Men, but they're just seven characters in search of a story. I mean, they're Plastic Man over and over and over, and all they do is bicker and die after they fight a robot. And kids would cycle out of comics, so he would use the same plot a year later, almost all the way through. Uh, I just found that, like, awful, you know? Mm -hmm. He didn't just take elements of it. He did the same script with different characters uh, in Army of War, Weird War Tales or whatever. And I thought I always just felt DC was cynical, did not like their audience. And if you read their letters pages, this is a big difference between Stan Lee and the people at DC at the time. DC would never agree they were wrong. If you read their letters pages, they always have a bullshit answer for why they effed up or you caught them on something, Stan would admit it and send you an envelope. The no prize. I mean, that's kind of like says a lot about both companies. Marvel is always willing to admit they screwed up, and DC argues with six-year-olds. <laughs> and it's true, you know what I mean? You know, it was the house style and the attitude, and Stan just had a better attitude. The weird art, a lot of people made fun of Kirby and Ditko and Marvel's art from the other companies at the time because it was very blocky and ugly to them. It wasn't the clean lines that you got uh, from Dell, DC, and, and whatnot. But the stuff really just sings. They're willing to go out there and just do cosmic craziness. And I think the continuity obviously hooked people. I mean, did anybody really have this integrated, line-wide story? In the Marvel Universe, that was pretty genius. DC kind of had them team up and whatever, but they couldn't quite do it. They'd split up the characters into threes. You know, there's a company that like was so uptight that Superman, he couldn't lose a race with the Flash, if I remember, right? Like, they had the tie because, oh, God, like Superman's going to sue them or something for <laughs> defamation of character. They were so uptight, and their comics remained uptight in the 70s. I didn't read DC as a fan until the 80s when I got back into comics in high school because Marvel guys were over there. George Perez and Wolfman were over there on New Teen Titans. And my friend Tommy and my friend at school, Mark, they were both telling me this, so I went over to Paul's Sweet Shop and I bought comics, and it was like doing a drug again, you know? Uh, it all came back, and I just started buying comics from Marvel and DC like crazy. Yeah, that's the transition. That's what kind of helped me get into more of the DC books. I started noticing, oh, look at this. Uh, Gene Colan's over here doing Batman, and I think Jerry Conway was writing it, but I was like, oh, and I've always liked Batman. Never really read it on a regular basis when I was a kid, but now it's like I'm going back discovering all these things. I liked the Batman show. That's what was funny. I loved yeah. the Batman show. For some reason, it didn't connect to me as a kid to ever buy Batman comics. And my friends who bought them, I wouldn't even read them over their house, which is strange because my divorced father would take us every Sunday and buy us whatever comics we wanted at the Te Amo uh, cigar place and newsstand in Brooklyn. And um, we could buy whatever we wanted because he didn't really deal with us. One of his ways of, I think, of feeling less guilty was he would buy us comics. So I would buy all the Marvels that came out that week. And my sister, who's two years younger than me, would buy uh, Harvey and Archie. And I would read her comics every week when I was done with my Marvels. But I guess I was just a dick because I was doing that, you know, DC sucks thing, even though I wasn't like in fandom. 
So I wouldn't read any of Michael's comics or Clifford's comics or anybody's. I did read the Atlas comics that Clifford got a hold of, and I didn't know where he got a hold of them. His divorced father, everyone had a divorced parents that I knew except two couples. He got Atlas, and that was not distributed locally to us. I'd never found Atlas. I'd never found Charlton. But Atlas ripped off Marvel completely, so I'll read those. I read everything but DC. I would read the comics in the doctor's office, the dentist's office, you know, that they had there, the book of dentist cartoons and things. But <laughs> DC, I was this adamant jerk. I guess I was destined to work in a comic shop with that attitude, <laughs> uh, which, which is what I did. Well, as we get older, our tastes change, become more refined. Oh, yeah. That's why people are arguing about He-Man at the age of 50, <laughs> as we speak. Well, for some of us, our tastes get more... <laughs> I'm joking. I'm, I don't know what you're arguing about. For all I know, you know, you're cool with the new She-Ra. I am. Who cares? <laughs> are there any particular comics or a genre of comics which you did not have an interest in early on, but which you like very much now. I didn't pick up horror comics. I've said this in interviews before, especially when I was doing World's Funnest like 20 years ago or 19, whatever. Actually, eight, I, whatever. It doesn't matter. Shut up. I'm telling myself to shut up. Great. Uh, <laughs> but the Batmite comic I did was because I fell in love with Batmite because I was 9 or 10, and I borrowed two books from Michael Kemper when I was sick in bed. He lent me the one of those 30s to the 70s collections, mm -hmm. and it was Superman, I think, that had the Batman story. And he lent me the Nostalgia Press EC comic collection, which was an oversized book that took one story, I think, from every artist at EC. Honestly, we always talk about how horror comics don't scare people, but they do scare kids. At least they used to, because I found this thing dreadful. I actually had nightmares, because there's some disgusting stuff in that book for a kid who hadn't seen graphic violence before much, you know? Mm -hmm. It's not like today where kids are watching The Walking Dead from, you know, the time they pop out. Right. <laughs> you know, and playing Grand Theft Auto and, you know, doing whatever. The damn kids. But uh, horror comics was something that I avoided because of that. I got into non-Marvel comics, by and large, because of working in uh, a comic store. I guess it was 86. No, it would have been earlier. God, I don't even remember years. Uh, the Fantastic Store was a shop that opened up around the corner from Paul's Sweet Shop, where I started buying comics again. And that was uh, Jim Hanley and Dave Brukus were the partners there. I think Kathy, Dave's wife, was a partner as well. She didn't work there, however. And I started going there with all the kids in the neighborhood. Uh, it was about a mile from my house, mile and a half, I can't remember. But I would walk there all the time. I would hit it up on the way back from New York High School, which was a few blocks away. And Jim, more than Dave, Jim loved comics. I don't think he does anymore, which is a shame, but what are you going to do? But he was into the spirit. He had the Gladstone Donald Duck books. He had other Rainbow. He had Little Lulu. When Raw was coming out, he started getting Raw. When Fantagraphics was turning out books uh, like Love and Rockets, he was a champion of those books. We were selling the Marvel and DC books, and I think Charlton was still hanging on, and Archie and things like that. But this was all new to me. At the same time that the weekly papers, the free weeklies in the city where I was going to college, were starting to run people like Charles Burns and uh, Matt Groening and um, Linda Barry. So all these new wave punk kind of comics were coming out, all these cool humor comics or crazy comics, more influenced by undergrounds and things other than just plain pop culture or strange pop culture, like with Charles Burns. But all those cartoonists started to creep into my life because I was picking up The Village Voice, which was free, and I was picking up the New York Press. So you got a lot of free comics that way. And then in the store, as a customer, had access to this stuff. And then as an employee, when I got hired, I would just sit there and read everything. I, I preferred being in that store than being in my house. 
I got kicked out of my house and slept in the store one or two times at Fantastic Store. And then when Jim, I got fired for reasons that make perfect sense to me. I got fired, um, and but a year afterwards, Jim broke away and started Jim Haley's Universe in Eltingville. And I got rehired, and so I was able to you know, keep up with comics. The first comic I bought when I was working was I got $4, $2 in trade, and $2 cash. And I was saving up for the Tales from the Crypt box sets. That was the first thing that I saved for. That was, you know, more than a dollar comic, dollar twenty-five. So that was the very. I had never thought of that. That yeah, the first thing that I like had a grail for was uh, Tales from the Crypt, which is the comics that scared the crap out of me. That's funny. Hmm. Epiphany. That does explain some things to me because I was going to ask how your work changed because you started out early on, Dork, Milk and Cheese. And then later you moved into horror with Beasts of Burden with Jill Thompson. And I know you were asked to contribute a short story to Dark Horse's anthology series by the editor, Scott. So Scott Alley, yeah. Yeah. So I was just wondering, like, why did you decide to make that change? Like, I know you were invited to, but what made you so interested? It's not so much that I decided. I've, I've never had a career plan, as I guess anybody who likes my work or has looked, seen enough of it can tell because I'm all over the place. I really would do whatever somebody asked me to do or if I had an idea for something, even if I wasn't a huge fan of it. I mean, I wrote a Predator series because I had an idea after I drew a Predator series. The first work that I got that actually paid me a page rate in comics was Bill and Ted, which was a humor series with a lot of science fiction in it and a lot of time traveling and pop culture jokes and family stuff for the characters. And I have never seen the first movie, but I got that from some other work I was doing, which was had a lot of music in it, uh, Pirate Corps, which became Hectic Planet. And I needed the job, so I took it. And then later, somebody at Dark Horse, I was called by Diana Schutz because somebody flaked out and never turned in their pages on a Predator book. So I found myself penciling a Predator book. And it's one of the weakest things I've ever done. But, I mean, I worked really hard on it, but I was not the guy for that book. It is, of course, the best-selling book I've ever worked on and ever will work on. (laughs) But I like everything. I grew up as a fan of a lot of things. I loved comedy. I liked monsters. I liked wrestling. I liked music. I I like pinball. I just like a lot of trash culture. I mean, uh, but I also, I mean, I I enjoyed reading and I enjoyed reading things that weren't science fiction. I like baseball. You know, weirdly enough, I wasn't a jock, but I played baseball. Uh, I bowled. I tried to play basketball. I was terrible at it. Uh, I played football and ended up in the hospital when I was 19. Uh, paralyzed for a couple hours. I mean, I used to just kind of go with the flow on that sort of thing, and I, I enjoyed almost everything. And that's why I guess there's so much pop culture and so much weird stuff in my comics, because it's all getting processed. But I really got into horror in the 80s, reading Stephen King books and Lovecraft. And it, we had paperbacks in the Fantastic Store. We had a, a really good paperback section of horror, science fiction, and fantasy. So that was another aspect of it. I was able to get turned on to different writers. As a kid, I really liked science fiction. I've gotten much more into horror throughout my life. But horror was something that uh, Scott knew that I was interested in. I think I had done a Hellboy story for Weird Tales by that point, or was working on it with Roger, uh, the homunculus. Beast of Burden was just, it was the first time I ever got to sit down and really write a ghost story or a horror story, supernatural. It did really well, so we brought it back because it wasn't supposed to be more than that one story. Jill and I enjoyed working on it, and people at Dark Horse liked it, and it got a really nice response. The next one, again, I was directed. The first one was Haunting, so it was a ghost story about a haunted doghouse. That came first. The dogs came, you know, you have to have dogs for a doghouse. And the following year, they did a book 
of witchcraft, so I thought Black Hats. It's really kind of how the first four stories were all directed by the title of the book, the, the theme. It was, uh, the Dead was the next one, so we, had, we did the zombie dogs. And the fourth one was Monsters, so we did a werewolf, a kid who uh, showed up, a homeless kid who was a werewolf. And we just made it very sad, that last one. And by that time, after four years, 2007, 2008, Dark Horse asked us if we wanted to do a series. So we had to come up with a name for it, which was a, a real pain in the ass. And we ended up with Beasts of Burden. We did a miniseries, and we've done a couple of one-shots. And, yeah, that's become, in some ways, my main job, although I haven't been able to do it as much as I'd like. Since I'm thinking in that area, a lot of the stuff I'm thinking about is horror. More horror ideas came up. And Blackwood, a few years ago, I started adding notes to the file for that. I guess, technically, I write ghost and horror stuff full-time, or that's what I'm working on most of my time right now. Well, it's funny. I was kind of going through some of my books uh, last night preparing for this, and I just reread Beasts of Burden number two, Lost. And it had been a while since I read it. And I read it, and it you know, starts off from, like laughing at it. I said, this is great. you know. And I nudge my wife and say, look at this. This is great. And then I, I finish reading it, and I'm like, oh, God, that's so heartbreaking. It's so heavy. It was a really good story. I mean, they're all great, but it's, <laughs> it just reminded me how impactful they are, which is what I really love about a good book is it really hits you in the gut it really moves you emotionally either it elates you or it makes you think and or bums you out because you're like wow that's really striking you don't just kind of read it and go oh, okay oh, that was cool put it aside you know you stop me to go wow and take a breath that's really great to hear i appreciate that the thing is that issue was really hard to write so is the one with the uh, the werewolf and so is the one with dimphna and they all have something in common is that they started making me feel really unhappy while I was working on them. Sarah, my wife, Sarah Dyer, she came in to uh, help me co-write the werewolf story, A Dog and His Boy, and the Dymphna story, which was, um, what was the title of that? What the cat dragged in. Sometimes when the stories get like that, the animals are just so innocent and cute. They're like babies, you know? I know for a fact we have people who can't touch the book because of the harm to the animals, and I understand that. And I try not to exploit that, but the story that you were talking about was written expressly with my fear of losing my child. It was not like I'm paranoid and afraid of it, but my daughter was young at the time. She was probably only like one or two when I started working on that one. Gosh, I don't know now. So I was really, you know, freaking out a lot as a new father or a fairly new father. And uh, so that book came home to me a lot of while writing it. I'm starting to think about, how, you know, trying to plug in to what happens to the character of Hazel, the dog, the mother of the two pups who are missing. I just got depressed thinking about my own childhood and the problems of my own childhood. It was also I was going through a time where uh, I'll try not to get too off the subject, but basically the birth of my child made me think a lot about my childhood, how I was raised, and how I was treated. And seeing a small child in front of you and thinking that somebody could be very negative to a child really bummed me out. It just brought everything home again. Lost was about the fear of losing your child, and the story about Dymphna was a story that started off as a parody of Lovecraft about an inept demon that got trapped in the house and somehow got turned into a story about people who should not have kids. Uh, bad parenting. That one also, I was just having real problems being too close to it and, and needing a, a set of eyes and another mind on it. But the thing about horror, at least with Blackwood and Beasts of Burden, is that there's a lot of comedy, especially in Blackwood. It's not as over the top as something like Return of the Living Dead, but it's it's the comedy is supposed to be a heavy element there and purposeful. But on Beasts, I think if horrible things are going to happen and these characters are not not realistic, but don't act realistically, they don't have real emotions, they don't have real 
relationships and react to things based on their personality. After you're not going to care what happens to them as much. And if you don't have jokes in horror, uh, it's just relentless horror. And after a while, it's it's like reading Books of Blood by Clive Barker. I enjoyed those books, but you know it was a downer every ending, and the characters were humorless. And I didn't connect to a lot of the people. I always thought about that, how twist endings and bad endings in horror, negative endings uh, or bleak endings. I like them as a reader, but you get tired of them and you start to expect them the same way that you used to expect a happy ending in an old 50s horror movie. So I like to change it up in Beast and have an issue that's funny, have an issue that's more action in it, a little more gore maybe. But it always builds the world and it always pushes the Burden Hill narrative further. Blackwood is just goofy. You know, the characters are human. I can jerk around, I think, a lot more. You have all these things coming out right now. So you're going to have Beasts of Burden, another new series coming out, a miniseries, Wise Dogs and Eldritch Men. And right now, ongoing, this miniseries is Blackwood. And the third issue will be out, I believe, next month. Next and week. Ha- next week. Next week, yeah. Yeah, and it's going to finish up in August. So that'll be four issues. Right, and then Beasts, Wise Dogs, and Eldritch Men, which I'm doing with uh, Benjamin Dewey and Nate Picos on lettering. Ben's painting watercolors over his inks. They look terrific. I can't wait for this to come out. That's going to start in August. So one comic leaves, one comic enters, I guess. So we'll have uh, another four issues after Blackwood ends. And my partner on that is Veronica Fish. And then Andy Fish, her husband, uh, started assisting. And basically, he's now like the third of Team uh, Blackwood. He's lettering and doing working on layouts and helping Veronica with stuff and doing some of his own art in there as well. And to have eight comics come out in a year is, is something that I haven't done since Bill and Ted, I guess, in 92. That's really weird. I drew those, but still, I've never written a continuity comic or anything like that. I've only had a four-issue series come out once in a while, and that's it. Are you ramping up your output now? Or is this just the way it's turning out? I'm doing less drawing. I don't know if I'm going to go the route of, you know, some of these guys, you know, who uh, stop drawing comics altogether to uh, concentrate on writing. You know, writing, there's all that fighting some people have about what's harder, writing or drawing. And I'm like, they're both hard, but mentally I find writing harder. But talking about hours and physical needs and things, drawing is really tough. Uh, much tougher for me than writing, and I think for almost everybody. My hand's pretty mangled. had a lot of problems with my hand and my arm. So I get ideas for writing all the time, and I'm getting jobs for that, so it's very hard to go to the board and knock out some milk and cheese strips or something like that that I don't even know if anything's going to happen with them. And it's I can see why people stop drawing. I don't want to. I'm doing commissions at least, but uh, I'm hoping to bring Dork back at some point or just some humor comics of some sort because I like working on them, but... I'm really enjoying the horror work. I'm really enjoying Blackwood and Beasts, and we're going to continue these things. So, yeah, a lot less drawing, more writing, so I guess that means more issues. Plus, I'm broke all the time, so <laughs> it takes me forever to draw a comic book. Now, when you were younger, angry young man and expressing... Oh, that, that kind of... I was thinking of myself in a, in a Mets cap. I was like, <laughs> okay. But you expressed that through your work. Now, older... What are you expressing through your work now? Do you still feel any of that uh, anger? Or is there, are there other things you're looking to express? I'd prefer not to talk about anger because we're going to get into politics. Ah, okay. So, okay. But yeah, I'm still angry, but I think I'm angry about the right things. 
Does that make sense? I'm not angry about the stuff the Elfingville Club was angry at, which I could get angry at back when I was uh, a teenager mm-hmm. and in my early 20s. You know, it really mattered to me if, if Hawkeye's costume got changed. And I would be snotty to fans when we get into arguments in the comic store or at a convention or whatnot. That burned off a long time ago. I'm not as angry at the comics industry as I used to be because it's, it is what it is. The direct market is never going to really change. So I can't bash my head against the wall uh, waiting for store owners to finally wake up and think that I'm worth getting their books. The stores that carry my books, whether it's my humor stuff that they've pretty much always supported since they opened up their store or since I started working on my stuff. I mean, I feel like it's the same hundred stores since I was in retail that I knew carried this stuff. But if they're carrying Beasts of Burden and Blackwood and they didn't normally carry my stuff, that doesn't mean they're going to carry Dork or Eldenville or, or Call of Cthulhu or any of the other stuff that I'm working on. But it is what it is. And now when the books get collected, they go out to a different audience that I didn't have before. So, yeah, it's not worth getting worked up on that kind of stuff. I'm still angry, but I'm definitely angry at different stuff. I'm angry at things that matter. Yeah, I still get angry at myself. And that's what a lot of my comics were about, too. Because, you know, I've been trying to become a better person over the last 25 years or so. And it doesn't always work. It's a process to get away from that angry young guy who just liked make fun of people constantly. And the defensive reaction was just to be a schmuck about things because I was really nervous around people. You know, that still goes, but I'm calmer. I'm older. I've been to therapy. Uh, I have, I'm on medication. Um, so, uh, you know, I mean, there are people who think that I was like a raving drunk because I always had alcohol in my strips, but I, I can't hold my liquor. I would just keep going and fall down. I never had like alcohol in the house, but people also think I'm a lot angrier. I think than I was, you'd have to talk to my friends back in the day. I guess. <laughs> I, I do remember when after I met Sarah, that's had so much to do with it, meeting Sarah and going out and getting married that, uh, friends of mine in San Diego, when she went with me for the first time, one of them took her aside and said, I don't know what you've done, but he used to be such an asshole. <laughs> and it hurts to hear that. But at the same time, at least there was some progress being made. I'm not like the happiest person on earth, but I'm not a misfit or anything like that, I guess. We're all works in progress. I will be into the day I die. You know, <laughs> I'm never going to be perfect. And when you're writing horror, you, you're writing fear and you're writing paranoia and you're writing, you're expressing uh, your fear of the universe, of people or of institutions or situations, fear of being a parent, fear of failing. A lot of my work is about misfits. It's about people who don't fit in very well, either in their group or with their family or society or whatever. I don't write a lot of stuff about happy families. The happiest family in my books seem to be the murder family. They're serial killers. And that's the only like family that's together. Almost everyone else is missing, missing a parent or has no parents has bad relationship with their parents or orphans or like the orphan and beast of burden or are mistreated like Rex and beast of burden. I didn't even set these things up knowing it's just that part of it is parents get a short shrift in a lot of things because you don't want them around because they can just drive the characters around and call on the phone and get the police in horror movies. And Nancy Drew's dad has to go away a lot. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Otherwise it's over. You know, on page five, Nancy Drew's dad shoots the guy. But after a while, you start to come up with backstories for your characters and how they relate to everyone. And yeah, my characters from Hectic Planet to Eltingville. Yeah, Bill and Ted was a happy family. They were a big, big, wide, happy family that just happened to include the Grim Reaper and robots and stuff. But they had kids and they had wives and they were very uncynical. That was the point of that one. But my characters are all coming together with other people to form new families. 
in Hectic Planet, it's everyone on the uh, on the spaceship, the scrap heap. In Beasts of Burden, it's the animals who get together to fight the supernatural. In Blackwood, it's the students who, um, by choice or by circumstance, don't have families to depend on. Uh, and they're all very messed up teenagers for various reasons. That's what I realized my characters kind of were like. And I don't know if I can get away from that. I hope I can. Every once in a while you want to write something. Gosh, Cala Cthulhu, yeah, her parents have disappeared. That I write with Sarah. She's got family problems too, but she does love her family. At least she's looking for them. Sarah co-wrote that one, so there's actually uh, some happy family members there. Well, I was going to ask you about Sarah and not get too personal, of course, but how did you two first meet? How dare you? <laughs> the insolence. I don't know what insolence means. It, insolence, this is the stuff you take when your uh, blood sugar is messed That's up. That's right, yeah. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> uh, I met Sarah. I did an interview for a zine that she was co-editing called No Idea. A friend of hers gave her some Pirate Core comics, and there was a lot of ska and punk stuff in and around the comic and the backgrounds and the characters. They decided to do an interview with me, and uh, I sent her the interview questions back on paper. And we stayed in touch. You know, zine culture, I was in touch with a lot of people back then. And it's a different way of being in touch than the Internet. I know more people on the Internet, but I don't really have pen pals the way I did then. And people were always, you know, you'd be sending your comics and zines in for review to all these different places. And then you get contacted by, you know, free weeklies or The Onion started running milk and cheese. It was, it's, it was a really interesting network based around print. I, I wrote a lot of letters back then, you know. Here's a package, an envelope, you write a letter. Uh, Sarah and I stayed in touch for a while. We were dating other people and we weren't overtly flirting. But uh, I think we realized we were starting to like each other through the mail. Uh, she came up to New York with a friend of hers and she was going to go to uh, Philadelphia to see her dad. And when she came up. I think her mom's the one who said, you should give that guy a call, see if he wants to get together or something like that. We did get together. I dropped up some Bill and Ted pages at Marvel. I was exhausted and nervous. We went out for dinner, went and bought a lava lamp. I don't know why. I'm not a hippie, but I, I wanted a lava lamp. You know, it's that weird thing. You're an adult and you go, I have money to buy things. The 90s was the only time I had money. Um, then it was like, you know, I'm not allowed to have money anymore or something. <laughs> I would just, you know, bought toys, I bought books, I bought records, I bought sneakers. I was like, I can buy, I can go into a store and buy something. This is amazing. And I think I saw a lava lamp as just this exotic, out of reach adult thing that I had seen. And I wanted it. I got a lava lamp. And then um, we hung out after dinner. She swears that I was flirting with the waitress. Uh, and I swear I wasn't. I was nervous as hell. I dropped my fork on the floor for my knife. I was I was so nervous. I thought she looked great. I went to Florida to visit her, and that's where I learned about Krispy Kreme donuts, so I loved her even more. <laughs> and she came up, I think, one more time, and then she and a friend drove up here, and she moved in. She drove an 18-wheeler up here. That was the only truck she could get. Oh, my God. Really? Sarah's really badass. People don't know. They just don't know. Yeah, she drove an 18-wheeler. I couldn't do that. I'd be just way too nervous that I would start doing, you know, maximum overdrive all over the place. That was amazing. I do remember not being able to sleep that night because I was just kind of so worked up that I was happy. I don't know how this worked out. I'm a smart person, except when it comes to men, I guess. Now, you both work in the same field, and I wonder, is that scary? We do work in the field, actually, across the street. It's, it pays terrible. <laughs> <laughs> is that scary for you at times? I mean, you have to manage the peaks and valleys of getting work, the feast and the famine. How do you get through that? Freelancing is rough. Uh, it's not as rough as working in a field. I'm not going to complain that way. But freelancing was not scary for me until 
I guess 2004, 2005, when some of my emotional issues were, do you reap or sow first? I don't know. You reap what you sow. Yeah, well, I sowed a bunch of stuff around. I had a lot of bad breaks or just things didn't work out around 1999 to like 2002. I worked on a bunch of single projects that were really time consuming, and I was hoping that they'd pay off. Uh, one was the Elpingville pilot for the Adult Swim, and the other was the World's Funnest Book uh, for DC. I had this misguided idea that I would get more work from the uh, World's Funnest Book, and that superhero fans of genre comics might try out my work because they bought it because of all the people who were in it. And of course, we hoped that the pilot would turn into a series. And that was like three years of so much work. The income started to go down from that point. We ended up buying a house. And, you know, we had to get insurance when we ended up having our daughter years later, which I thought we were doing a lot better than we were. It turned out we had no insurance. I'm a moron who doesn't know about the real world. Uh, you know, we were healthy. Nothing ever happened. I mean, thankfully, not nothing too horrible has ever happened to us. Uh, knock on whatever this Ikea shit is. Freelancing has been tough for a while now. It's really only since I left SLG. And, you know, I'm not bashing them, but I had to get away from SLG. That was the other thing. I needed to get away from my publisher. The business model at SLG was not sustainable for me, especially when I had a child. There was no money up front. This was agreed upon. All the money was back in. That's why there's only one issue of Dork Out, I think, in the 2000s, because it was so hard to get a comic out that I wasn't getting paid for. And I put a lot of work into my comics. My OCD situation was pretty bad then, I guess, or the OCD that I'm semi-diagnosed with. I'm not a doctor and I don't play with one on TV. But, um, you know, I guess the perfect storm or whatever of two big jobs kind of eroded the income. After that, I was getting a lot of jobs that weren't paying so great. You know, we ended up working on Yo Gabba Gab and a few things. I wasn't getting my work done as quickly as I needed to. Clearly, uh, Sarah couldn't do as much work with a child uh, later in the decade. I, I think I also bought into the idea that the phone would always ring or the email would always come in because that's what it always did. I never looked for work. I never pitched a series until I pitched Blackwood. I pitched a superhero series to Dark Horse. We didn't really pursue because we ended up uh, some things, you know, that was to Scott Alley and, you know, Dark Horse didn't bite at that. That's a joke, man. <laughs> Maybe you will get it one day. But um, I didn't know how to do a pitch. The Blackwood pitch has taken me a couple of years because I was so worked up over making it good. I just did this crazy book report, you know, that I did not have to do. But it worked out okay. The series series seems to be doing all right. I'm enjoying it a lot. Andy and Veronica are great to work with. Uh, Sarah and I met Veronica in, at Heroes Con a couple of years ago, and, and I thought her work would be perfect for Blackwood. I found it very difficult to put a book together and find a collaborator because everybody that I worked with beforehand was either assigned to me or was a friend that asked me to come on to it or something like that, or two people talking about a project, you know? And so it was really hard to put together, but the way it all works out was really fun in a lot of ways, even though it was really stressful and I was really scared that it wouldn't pay off, my time would not pay off. Because getting the elements in, getting the scripts in is always exciting, but when you're doing it from the bottom up, when you're really building the idea and trying to pitch it, sell it, do it. I've never had that before. Everything was somebody saying, do you want to do something? That's really, you know, milk and cheese happened because two guys said, do you want to do a strip with them? The comic happened because I had done strips for other people who had called me, but their anthologies all went under before they could pay me or run the strips. I had a bunch of strips, so I asked Dan Votto at SLG, do you want to do a dedicated milk and cheese book? You want to just put out all the, I'll do some more and we'll do a milk and cheese book. And he said, sure. Things were much more freewheeling back then. Uh, you know, you, you solicited a book, put the cover in 
all the distributors. And if it sold enough copies to stores, you did, then you went, ran off and did the book as fast as you can. So you hit the shipping date, which I screwed up a lot. So it's always like, you know, it's, you want to do Bill and Ted. That came out of nowhere. Predator came out of nowhere. Space Ghost came out of nowhere because of Milk and Cheese. We did some Bibles for Warner Brothers a bunch of years ago. I've never had an agent. I've never had a manager. We've never had representation. We've worked on about eight TV shows. We've done about five Bibles for animation, but I've never known how to like go for that work. Like I said earlier, I never had a game plan. And that's hurt me. I've got three horror books here and four humor books there and a bunch of superhero books there, some Simpsons and licensed work there. I've got one porno book and a work for Penthouse. So what am I to the, I don't know, you know, I don't know if that hurts me or helps me. Well, you have a wide variety of work, a lot of diversity, and you're still working. So it's working out. Yeah, but I don't get calls anymore. The industry has outgrown me. And uh, there's a lot of talented people who have come up over the last 30 years. I got into the industry at a time that a person with my weak skills as a young 20-something would never get into the industry now. I'd be doing web comics, and maybe people would react to them the same way. But my work was very crude, the early milk and cheese and uh, Hectic Planet stuff super crude. But I mean, times change, you know, it was a time of the after the turtles when lots of people got into the industry who weren't very good. In the late 30s, early 40s, production meant you needed more people. So a lot of people who weren't ready or not very good got in. But I stuck it out. I stayed in. I became a better writer. I became a better artist. And I like wearing a lot of hats because I think that I worry that if I throw myself into one project and it fails, you know, I'm going to sink with that ship. And I was always worried about never getting employed again, even though I was. But I still didn't make like a plan. Maybe I should have gotten a manager for an agent to try to get animation work in the late 90s. We were doing Space Ghost. We had worked on Superman. We were doing the Eltonville pilot. That's more than enough credits, I think, to get an agent. But I was afraid of asking around and, you know, and at the same time, we had heard a lot of stories about friends of ours who had agents or people working in the animation industry who had an agent who would really push them to take any kind of work, whether they liked it or not. So they'd make money, and so their agent would make money. And the shows that we've worked on, by and large, I'm really into, you know, or really behind, or I really like them, everything we've done. Uh, I didn't want to work on junk that either wasn't funny or wasn't well done. I've never been a careerist. I've always dreamed small. You know, I always thought in terms of comic books. I still do. You know, everybody's got a movie deal and a TV deal. And a lot of people aim towards that. Not everybody at all, but a lot of people do. And I just think about the comics. And uh, maybe I've just hobbled myself, I've realized, you know, over the years that I never really became a marketable identity. I didn't sell milk and cheese out to anybody. I didn't push that stuff on anyone. I didn't get an agent or a manager when I had show credits. You know, part of it was fear. Part of it was no real desire. I mean, if we wanted to work in L.A. or any of that stuff, we wouldn't have stayed on Staten Island. But it's weird. I find myself in a weird position. It feels like things are getting better over the last couple of years. As we, I describe it as we have a very large, heavy boat that we've been turning around, that I've been turning around. Sarah didn't need to be turned around. I, mean, I think she just kind of let me, you know, it's hard to tell people not to do something when you're close to them. I, I mean, I found out years later that there are a lot of people who felt I should have left SLG many years before I did. And Sarah had talked to some of these people. But how do you go up to somebody? You know, how do you go, uh, hey, I really think you should leave your friend and company that you've been with? Because there were just certain things SLG did not have the budget to do or the means to do to promote or to, I don't know, step up on certain ways. There was a lot of things about SLG that were fantastic for me at the time. 
But I didn't change. I never saw the industry changing. I didn't pay attention to the upsurge of the web and collections. You know, even though I knew about collections, it's not like I was ignorant. I didn't realize the market was changing where things like dork or neat stuff or hate. There's a reason that all the humor comics and anthologies are gone. Those people are all making graphic novels now. Jim Woodring, Pete Bag, all the people that were fan of graphics in those places. I think Adrian Tomine, I think, is the only person who's kept their comic going. Black and white, short story, or oh, he's probably in color. I, um, I think Berlin just ended, but that was, you know, one series, one story. Nobody's, you know, Mary Fleener, all these people who are doing comics are, have either left the industry or are doing books or not comics. Maybe they're on the web. So, yeah, you don't have sin. You don't have all those things. I miss them. I really love those. But I'm a dinosaur, and I've been working as a dinosaur for a very long time. I was still trying to make Dork, and I did Eltingville 1 and 2 as comics instead of just make. I should have made a book out of those and then collected everything. Uh, I should have made Dork 11 a humor paperback. It has like 200 different gags in it in 24 pages. I thought it would be cool to stuff everything into a comic, whereas... A lot of people were taking things like that and making books out of them or two books out of them. I'm not saying they're wrong. They were smart. I have just always looked down at my drawing board and done what's in front of me and thought this is going to be my next comic. I don't know if I'll ever do a graphic novel. I'm not a long-term person. That's why all these miniseries are good for me because I like to think in chunks. Every story in Beast of Burden has been a chapter that has an end, but it builds. Blackwood's going to be the same way except each four issues. I'm scared of like people who can do 12 issues, 31 issues – like Harrow County, 100 issues. I don't know how they do that. I don't know if I'll ever have the ability to concentrate and you know and feel up to that, have the confidence to do that. That was depressing. <laughs> <laughs> I've done a bunch of interviews, which is great. Interviews about your career because of the Dork book dredge up a lot of memories or a lot of incidents in your life that sometimes you wish I went left instead of right or, yeah, made a book out of Dork 11 made a joke book out of it. We could have done it at SLG. We could have sold it for, you know, six ninety five, four ninety five instead of a two ninety five comic that did terrible and took like two years, a year and a half to make. We'll lighten the mood here. These are just the fun questions I ask all my guests. Talk about genocide. A little a little <laughs> not in this day and age. No. Not in any day and age. Okay, lighten up. Easy questions for you. What do you like to do for rest and relaxation? I do not rest and I do not relax. If I have time to rest and relax, I do like to, you know, family stuff. We have reading time every night, which I have not been able to attend a lot because of work. We play tabletop games. We play video games or I watch them play because I'm not really great at them. I don't want to, like, goof up my daughter's Splatoon League. <laughs> she's 13, so she's getting into a lot of things now that are hers alone, not stuff that we share. So it's interesting, but at the same time, it's also I'm not necessary as much as I used to be as a companion, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. The older kid, that's that's obviously not unusual, but it's a kicker for me. It's kind of sometimes I feel like I'm like I'm just making this sad clown face and I'm like, oh, you want sad or you're out. <laughs> but, I mean, I don't relax well and we haven't had a lot of time because of uh, between work and trying to, you know, we've been wanting to move for years, just inching towards that. I don't know if we'll ever make it. There's just always something to do between the house and work, especially when you're you know, behind on everything and you need money. And we live in New York, which is expensive, and I don't need to be here, but it's hard to get out of. So I'm hoping something, you know, getting more comics out breaks or something, but I read, and when I draw, I listen to old uh, horror radio shows and old radio shows, I listen to music. But reading seems to be my biggest relaxation and pleasure that I have. 
I don't watch a lot of TV. I don't go to the movies. I used to be crazy about that stuff. I don't collect anything anymore. I get stuff from the comic store because I have a trade deal with them. I mostly get stuff that my daughter likes and that we all read, which is fine. I have a lot of comics. It's like I don't draw for myself. I don't keep my drawings. Uh, I keep a lot of my artwork. If I could, I'd sell most of it at this point. But I like working on commissions for other people. And while I do that, that's sort of relaxing, even though it's work and I can stress it. Yeah, I don't do much of anything. Uh, I don't go out much. Two of my friends, uh, on the uh, one on the island, one in New Jersey, uh, one of them's always traveling. I don't get together as often as we did, and they, I'm one of the only people with kids in, in my social group. It changes things. And I'm also yeah. lazy as shit most of the time. <laughs> I'm 53. I feel like a 16-year-old emotionally most of the time, and I'm afraid somebody's going to go, you're 16. We all know it. You're a phony. And, and the other times I feel like I'm the oldest person, I'm going to die. And I just don't want to go anywhere. And it's 99 degrees out today and yuck. I don't think this is how the 50, your 50s are for everyone, but that's how they are for me. I go on Twitter and I goof around with people. I go on Twitter too much some days. I got to stop doing that. Plus, it makes you very negative if you start reading everything, oh, yeah. interacting with everything. Uh, but, um, oh, I, you know, lately I've been watching uh, horror movies on Netflix, which is not always relaxing because they suck. But... <laughs> But I've been also watching some old garbage movies on YouTube, and I get a kick out of them. If they're terrible, I start drawing during them. I start drawing the people and the monsters, and I start making notes about how much I hate the movie, and I get a good laugh out of something like Children of the Corn or something like that. Um, but my daughter doesn't want to watch any of that stuff, so I can't do it on the TV downstairs. So I sit here like a loser watching horror movies on my computer <laughs> laughing at them. Uh, when I go downstairs, my daughter's like, so what crappy movie were you laughing at tonight? She calls them horrible movies. <laughs> she goes, first of all, they're horrible. And second of all, you're always complaining about how bad they are. Why do you watch them? And I'm like, I, I don't know. I enjoy horror movies. I read pulps. I've been reading a lot of nonfiction and genre stuff, just stuff that I don't have to think too hard about, you know, history that already happened and I, I can't, has no effect on me immediately. Pulps and horror stuff. I actually, I guess reading also lately has been a lot for work, research. I'm reading about Japanese folklore right now because of an upcoming project. So sometimes reading isn't even relaxing because I'm always taking notes. Holy crap, I gotta get a hobby. <laughs> yeah. What do you suggest? Should I, uh, Scrimshaw? I know, I think you have some great ways to relax. I think the horror movies are fun. Uh, you know, I watch old uh, noir films with my youngest son because he won't critique anything. He just sits there and watches anything I put in front of him. Really? Yeah, he, no, he enjoys it. a good it. deal. He'll... Alice, my daughter Alice, Emily Alice, she used to watch all sorts of this. She loved musicals. Gosh, she watched Singing in the Rain a lot of times. Uh, and she really enjoyed it. She enjoyed the Marx Brothers that we saw. She just, she she liked Buster Keaton. We were watching Jimmy Durante. We were watching a lot of Western, old uh, Gene Autry Westerns. She got into horses and stuff like that. She would watch a lot of this stuff. Um, she really likes anime. She liked Godzilla movies, you know, the jerky ones. Um, she wants to see Shin Godzilla really bad because he threw up fire all over the place. And I'm like, wow. I didn't even know that. <laughs> these kids with their information and technology these days. You know what he really enjoyed and reacted to was King Kong. Oh, I love that movie. We watched half of it, you know, and that's all he could really sit for. Dinner time, then bedtime. Next day, I have it on. It's on the TV, and it's, the screen's frozen. And he points at it, and he's like, Rrr, and he's, he gets it, right? So we're watching so this. So your, your son's 30, right? <laughs> he's, not, he's not even two yet. And, oh, okay. All right. Well, don't scare him too bad, you know. Don't. Uh, well, that's the thing. You know, he was fine with it. Don't show him the thing. Oh, that would not be good. 
no, 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 not the. Oh, geez, I don't want to see the thing. Even the old one, I think, might freak him out. Got a couple of jump scares that actually work. I'm surprised he's not messed up from watching King Kong because I watched the the full version with all the stuff that was edited out back in, and I was watching some of this, and I was like, they have a spider pit in it. No, they don't have that. But they do have the woman that he picks up by mistake, thinking right, that's right. Whole- and then he just drops her, and she's like falling, going ah. I remember when some of the new stuff actually got onto TV, I think Channel 9 out here was showing some of the – because unfortunately, some of it's really racist, mm-hmm. but it's violent. I mean it's yeah. pretty yeah, – I think it's pre-code and there's – that is – to me, that scared the crap out of me as a kid, the idea that he got the wrong girl and just tossed her aside like that. She falls to her death and like, you can watch her drop all the way down. The scene with the um, train. The overhead mm-hmm. train yep. was insane because they – I don't know how they filmed that shot where they just threw – 20 people and you know on top of each other um it's really vicious even for this day it's scary yeah well, he was in this one the fleeing natives king kong they show him step on one and grind him into the ground yeah that's the stuff that i uh, yeah and he eats one i think he puts one in yeah. his mouth and throws he does, it he does. Yeah. yeah and you still you still like kong even though he's throwing women and, and uh natives uh, uh he's misunderstood and you still love him <laughs> i love him yeah i, I love him what the hell is wrong <laughs> I love that movie to death. I've always wanted to show it to my daughter, and I missed my chance. I think she's she's not like, oh, daddy's crappy movies. She has an interest in seeing these things, but she has her own interests. So I should have shown her King Kong. It's like we got to the point where she wouldn't be scared of King Kong because she doesn't really like horror stuff. I mean, like even stuff that you that might not scare most kids today didn't work for her. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, she ran out of the room when we showed her Yo Gabba Gabba episode that we wrote. Uh, when she was three, she flipped out and ran away because everybody has their thing. Some people it's clowns, some people it's snakes. Jill Thompson can't look at a picture of a snake. There will never be a snake in the Beast of Burden issues that she does. Um, she has a real fear of snakes that's intense. I'm afraid of everything. That, you know, that's all. That's Charlie Brown. And uh, my daughter hated transformation. She mm. did not like when a character became another thing in any sort of way. She really loves the Moomin, the Moomin trolls. We had gotten, I don't know if it's Russian. No, it's not. Well, we had gotten these uh, felt animation shows from Europe of the Moomins. And when the uh, the goblin, I think, is when this, the goblin and the panther, he changes somebody's head, either Moomin's head or somebody. She flipped out. She was She was like two. She hated it, the idea that you could be changed. We could not, if anything showed a person being changed into something. You know, if it turned into a cat, it didn't bother her. But in, in an episode of Yo Gabba Gabba, Sarah and I wrote, Broby becomes a giant. First of all, she didn't like the fact that he was being uh, childish and obnoxious to DJ Lance, <laughs> which is a whole different other thing. He accidentally gets hit with a ray that makes DJ Lance go back to being a human behind the uh, the world that they have. And we were so excited to show her our episode that we wrote. You know, she loved the show. We work on the show. And she goes screaming out of the room crying. That was oh, a wonderful moment for me as a father, excited to share something. Yeah. Well, thinking back to when you were a kid, what posters or pictures did you have on your bedroom wall? Is this one of your uh, questions you ask everyone? It sure is. I had a feeling. Uh, let's see. I didn't have many. First of all, if I fucked up the walls, my mother would have cracked them. <laughs> okay. So, I, yeah. Okay. Let me. You know, that's a funny thing. No one's asked me that, so let me think. I know that I had a Star Wars poster in 77. It was probably uh, from Starlog Magazine and taped up. I know that I had a Foom, the Foom poster that uh, Steranko did. Uh, I was a member of Foom, and we were in Brooklyn, so I would have been 12, 13. I had that up on the wall. My mother ripped that down from the wall and destroyed it. 
Uh, so I don't have, I didn't have that. Oh, I had the Wizards poster, the William Stout Wizards poster. I was a big animation freak as a young kid. Uh, I still am, but I wanted to be an animator. That's why, in fact, I stopped uh, reading comics for a while. I just wanted to be an animator and do stuff like that. I had the uh, poster for Wizards on my wall. Yeah, she tore that off the wall and destroyed it during one of the uh, times that she worked my room over. I had to rebuy a lot of Migos. Uh, I had to rebuy, well, or have as a present, uh, a lot of Aurora models. Things got uh, tossed around a bit, let's say. So, yeah, those are the only three I can remember. And unfortunately, they trigger another crappy memory. But what are you going to do, right? We work with what we have. I remember that I never had posters of uh, actresses or models on the wall, you know, in bathing suits or bikinis or stuff. My friends did. I'd go to the mall and I'd look at all the posters that they had and, uh, you know, Farrah Fawcett and Cheryl Teagues and Cheryl Ladd and everything. And I never quite understood the idea of putting those up, though, because, like, as a kid, it just made me feel lonely lonelier okay like if i had a picture of a, of a famous attractive woman on the wall i just thought that's not company that's condemnation or something that's just like you know, this you're never going to date this person why would you buy a poster of them and put them up on your wall but at the same time i was like you know putting star wars up on the wall that made more sense to me I, i've never put up pictures of women on it's weird but yeah spaceship foam wizards poster what 13 year old had a fucking wizards poster on there what a, what a nerd <laughs> How about music? What were you listening to at the time? I had very few albums at that time. I did not have money for albums. If I had money, I was going to buy a comic book or, you know, Starlog or Famous Monsters. Or uh, I had a subscription to The Monster Times and to Funny World, which was a, uh, a serious animation journal uh, at the time. Gosh, I know I had ELO Records. I loved Electric Light Orchestra. I listened to a station that basically played the hits. There was a famous station in the New York area that played a lot of punk and new wave that people loved. And I saw commercials for it, but didn't understand the commercials. And when I started getting into odder music, it was through television. And I really wish that I had listened to it. I watched a lot of television as a kid. I had a TV in my room from about the age of 11 up, maybe 10. Because it kept, you know what I mean? It was something pacify the kids get them out of your hair i was an insomniac because maybe because i was watching tv all night or maybe because i was an insomniac because i've always had trouble sleeping mm -hmm. but i would watch tv until tv ended on weekends and i could watch tv until one two in the morning they had some weird programming on back then in the new york area they'd have these shows that showed music videos so i got hooked on that stuff at a fairly early age so around 79, 78. I mean, they would play stuff like Bowie, but then they would be playing like XTC and Susie and Blondie and the Buzzcocks. It was a really great show. It was called Rock World. It's an hour-long show, and they had a lot of really cool stuff. Lena Lovitch, I think Nina Hagen was on there. So I was really starting to get into all these British bands and all this stuff. And then I was getting into the Ramones because they were local. But TV is what did it. Saturday Night Live used to have really cool bands on that weren't famous, you know? So I caught Devo, I caught Fear. That's how I would get into bands. In my 14, 15, I guess, or so, I was really heavy into finding music. Uh, Uncle Floyd, which was a local humor kids show, I would have the Ramones on, he would have all these different bands on, you know, bands that had FMU DJs and, and all these oddballs. I was into pop culture from a very early age. I was into the idea of knowing about pop culture at a very early age. I would read books about movies. I would watch talk shows, variety shows. I would watch Groucho Marx on You Bet Your Life at four in the morning. I'd watch The Life of Riley with William Bendix. I was a 13-year-old kid who knew who Bob and Ray were. 
knew who er Ernie Kovacs was and also knew who Grim Natwick, the animator, was. Somehow I was also playing sports. I do not understand myself in a lot of ways. At the same, I was in Little League and I had the potential to have dated in high school, and but I couldn't do it. You know what I mean? Couldn't make the time. I loved show business. I loved show business. I was crazy for humor, for music. I knew who the Harmonic Cats were, you know, crap like that. I, I knew who Benny Bell was because I, I listened to Dr. Demento. So I loved novelty records. I just liked all aspects of performing and the history of show business and all this stuff. Movies. I loved movies. I'd watch TV. I would watch the religious programming if I had to because there was nothing else on. And then the U.S. Farm Report on Sunday morning I would watch, which had ads for John Deere tractors because I couldn't turn the TV off. That was my company. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, TV was my company. But I, I listened to music when I was studying, and I found out music wherever I could on television. So the things that I was into were initially whatever was the hit music of the day. That doesn't mean I liked it all. I'd sit through Kenny Rogers to get to the Rolling Stones, if you know what I mean, mm -hmm. to get to Blondie and the Talking Heads. Then I started to realize, you know, you've got options. You can find a place that only plays things you like. You know, I listened to a lot of the high school music that everybody out here listened to, all the Jethro Tull and Yes. Well, actually, that's what I like, prog rock a lot. I liked anything that was kind of a little weird, but not too weird. Then I started to like everything. Uh, then I discovered WFMU when I was older and, and local radio and things like that. And Sarah was into a lot of things that I wasn't into or had opened my ears up to. So, you know, I now listen to things like Western Swing. I mean, well, I've always listened to classical, but I've never known much about it. I've never been able to kind of get a hook into it. It's like, oh, it's the one that goes like this, or it's the one that was in the Bugs Bunny cartoon, or it's the one that was in the ad. Flower Song, I think I know that one, that kind of thing. But I've become a real junkie for radio. That's, I think, where my show business love transferred, because I stopped watching TV when I worked, because it was too distracting. I didn't like a lot of what I was watching. So out of the 90s, I started listening to the radio almost exclusively, listening to WFMU and local college stations and things like that, and then the internet, and then uh, listening to, you know, old TV shows, uh, comedy shows from the BBC, things like that, spoken word, audio books, and gotten into listening to people playing Call of Cthulhu oh. on YouTube, because it's like a book that I don't know what's going to happen, and I've always been interested in role-playing games. I used to role-play constantly, big D&D player, champions, Gamma World, Traveler. This is what I did because I didn't date, you know? Me and my friends got together every weekend, and uh, I was way too afraid to ask a girl out. So I rolled dice during my prom. That's That Eldingville joke comes from me. <laughs> but yeah, music was tough. I didn't own, I wanted to buy records. I remember buying a Joe Jackson album. I remember buying Madness albums, and uh, for the first time, record shopping in the city was terrifying to me, and I was not a little kid. Asking questions was very hard, still is, especially when you have a place like Bleaker Bob's where the uh, owner was a piece of shit who yelled at everyone. I mean, that doesn't, you know, that's why I shouldn't, I shouldn't have been an asshole when I worked in a comic shop because, you know, that's the thing. The things that I attack fans for being like in Eltingville, it's also the way that I acted in a comic shop. Another reason I dislike it because I shouldn't have been a hypocrite. If I didn't like the way the guy from Bleaker Bob's acted, and I didn't like the way I saw John Byrne yelling at young fans when I was a kid going to conventions. Why did I do that myself? So that was a long answer to what is one of your quick questions, right? That is one of the most complete answers I've ever had. <laughs> I told you, I don't go anywhere. I have nobody to talk to. <laughs> well, I asked this question of everyone, and I almost hesitate to ask it, but... Ask it because you know you're going to be here another half hour. <laughs> <laughs> Think of a happy time now. Was there a birthday that stands out in your memory? A happy one. What no. was it? What happened? None? 
Next question. <laughs> no, uh, isn't that terrible? Well, if it's not, there's not. I don't have a lot of, well, yeah, I was probably 19, and uh, I was dating at the time, so you can figure that one out. Okay. That was a good birthday with my first girlfriend that, you know, I was with for more than a couple of weeks or something like that. Uh, I remember that being a lot of fun. Oh, my God, wait a second. Okay. I won't go into this because I've talked about this before. And All right. Because all my birthdays were really bad. They'd be like bowling birthdays or things like that because I was a messed up kid. Uh, I was terrible. I was the worst bowler out of all my friends pretty much. So I was like angry that I didn't win on my birthday. Mm -hmm. I was one of those idiots who kicked the ball. I mean, this is when I'm like 11. I'd almost always get into a fight with my mother on my birthday because I guess she was worked up also. We were not good around each other as a mother-son. That's the way it goes. Um, she has a different take on it. Go figure. Uh, but I do remember the greatest thing that my mom ever did for me as far as I'm concerned. I mean, other than helping me with college. That was terrific. I didn't you know, necessarily want to go, but she wanted me to go. My mom, in 1976, I believe, my mom took me to see Monty Python for my birthday. Oh, nice. Live. Wow. And it's one of the best times I've ever had in my life uh, as far as just going out and doing something like that. It was outrageous. It was so good. I had gotten into Python flipping channels and uh, watching it on PBS, and I got into the goodies, and I got into a lot of the Britcoms and a lot of the British shows you know, Morecambe and Wise, even if it wasn't that funny, I still watched it because there were connections because some of the guys from Python wrote for some of these older shows that PBS was picking up. But Python made me laugh so goddamn hard as a kid, you know, and the idea that I could see them, uh, they played at City Center in New York and I didn't have good seats, but it really didn't matter because I knew the bits so well that I didn't need to see their faces up close, <laughs> but it was still good seats. It was not a huge, huge place. We were in the upper last tier in the middle and my mom hated Monty Python. That's what was great. That I mean, I, I give her that for sacrificing a few hours mm -hmm. because she really hated that. And generally, she would not put up with stuff like that. But she hated Monty Python on the Holy Grail. Her and her girlfriend had come home to where me and Michael Kemper's mom, who I mentioned, and they were telling us how stupid this movie was. You know, there's coconuts and, and right. me and Michael Kemper thought this was. We thought everything was hilarious that they were telling us. They go, "This sounds like the, this sounds great." <laughs> And I had always wanted to see that movie. There was no way to find a movie back then, you know? If it didn't come back around or go to television, yeah. it was a myth, mm -hmm. you know? So the Holy Grail was a goddamn myth. They throw a carol on a catapult. That's amazing. So my mom takes me, meanwhile. Her mascara is running down her face. She's laughing so goddamn hard. She's practically pissing herself. And I'm looking at her, and I'm going, I thought you hated them. And she's like, oh, shut up, you know? It was, <laughs> we had no problems that night. Everything went well. Python was fantastic. It was all of them. Neil Innes, they showed animation while they were doing set changes, and they showed short films from the German stuff that they shot. It was a dream come true for me. Wow. And afterwards, we went to a restaurant near Broadway with uh, her boyfriend, who she ended up marrying, uh, my stepfather Howard, who was a cop, and we ate at a place that was, like, expensive. It was in the Broadway area which as a kid was magic to me. That was as a kid but the best birthday I've had. That's a great one. No, it was amazing. And it. Uh, I wish I could have had a few more of them. It didn't have to be the show. But uh, I wasn't in a place for that, and neither was anything else. But now my birthdays, I really don't care about them much. I hear you. <laughs> it's too much trouble. It is. The only birthday that matters is our daughter's. You know, when things pick up a little bit better, we can go places again. We tend to go to Mitzwa in New Jersey, have a nice hangout there. First stuff, and then you know, get a fudgy the whale. 
Uh, Fudgy the Whale. Yeah. I remember those commercials. <laughs> I didn't have one until I was a father because I think most of them were sold as a joke. And then you go, wow, I think I want one of these again. <laughs> Do you remember the ads where Fudgy the Whale was the same mold that they used for the Santa Claus face? Yeah, Dumpy the Pumpkin. Santa Claus's hat had a fin. <laughs> There's amazing stuff that I did not remember. We were showing it to our daughter on YouTube, and I was like, I do not remember the bunnies too well, or so the Easter bunnies. They, they're atrocious. Mm-hmm. Like from Mangala's lab, come <laughs> as bunnies. But New York, where did you grow up? In Delaware, always been, yeah. Oh, okay. You're tri state area near it. So you got good TV. I was amazed to find out most of the country, except for you know, major cities. We're not really a good hub for television. Sarah grew up. They only had WABC. That's all they could get. Uh, WABC, PBS, and then later on they got Turner. She got to see some really cool stuff. I never saw like Space Giants and all that. But growing up in the New York area was great for media if you were a geek. You had the three major networks, but then you had 5, 11, and 9 syndicating everything and PBS showing crazy stuff. And sometimes you can get UHF to come in. And you'd see something wild. So it was just constantly, you know, I'd read the TV guide. I'd circle everything I wanted to watch that week. Uh, when I was like a little older, I would clip out what I did watch and put it into a book. And then one day I went, what the fuck is wrong with me? I threw that in the garbage. <laughs> it was like, it was like Ralphie, you know, it was like, son of a bitch. I'm crazy. You know, I was doing that with animation. I would watch cartoons and write down the credits because there were no books on that stuff at the time. Right. No Wikipedia. No, the, even the Lennon Moulton book, I don't think, was out at the time, which was like mm-hmm. a Bible. And then you read and you find out like half the stuff's wrong because nobody had access. But I'd watch Max Fleischer cartoons and I'd be like, okay, Winston Sharples does the music. It was, it was ridiculous. You know, or Otto Mesmer does Felix the Cat because uh, that's what I want to do for a living. So it's funny that I gave that up in college, in the film school. I gave that up for comics again because I realized I could tell my whole story in a comic, whereas in animation, I'll be doing one minute things here or there. Maybe something for Sesame Street if I'm lucky, or maybe I'm assisting somebody on a scene in some terrible TV show. The 80s was a tough time for animation. So I ended up getting into animation through comics, which was pretty cool. So yeah, thanks for that. I did have a good birthday. Good. Now, these questions won't take you back. They're more either hypothetical or like right now. So hypothetically, if you were stuck on a deserted island, what is the one book that you would want to have with you. And this isn't about survival. I mean, you're going to be okay. Just you need something to entertain yourself. No, I'm not. <laughs> well, some people say I need a survival book. Well, don't don't worry about that. I'm not okay in my house. You know, I fall <laughs> down every flight of stairs there is here. I mean, I couldn't, I, I told you, I had to have Sarah help me with get Skype put up again. I could probably have a computer. Okay, I was on this island and I had internet, full internet and a computer. I still couldn't be rescued. <laughs> Everything. I, I'd probably be watching Carvel commercials on YouTube and then hit the wrong thing. Um, well, the joke answer, okay, the joke answer is that I would probably take one of the uh, giant IDW, the artist editions. I would get one of the biggest artist editions, like a Mad Book or something like that, or I would get one of the Sunday Press newspaper strips like Little Nemo or um, Gasoline Alley, and I would, because I could use that to, uh, oh, you said I'm okay. See, I would use that to block the sun. They're ah. huge. They may be a flotation device. They're so huge, those books. Oh, that's hard. I'm very bad. I got to tell you, as bad as I am at answering questions, I am the worst at making a single decision. I'm bad at ordering a food, and I'm terrible. What's your favorite movie? Oh, God, here's 20. Well, that's tough. Yeah. Well, it's the same thing with books. Yep. 
it would probably be something very large, very long. I'd be afraid that for it to be something like War and Peace or, you know, Moby Dick, which I actually want to read, because what if I don't like them? Maybe an anthology? Jeez. Yeah, yeah. That would be good. To be honest, it might, as goofy as it sounds, oh, God. I don't know. Maybe, oh. All right, I'll just say Watership Down. Maybe that. Okay. It made right. me cry. I haven't reread it. It's got a whole world there. It's removed, if you know what I'm saying. And it's removed as a fantasy, but isn't, you know, elves and stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's a pretty thick book. And it would give me ideas for Beast of Burden, because that's one of the big influences, I guess. I haven't read that book since I was probably like 20. But maybe, you know, I'll think of the perfect one when we're off. Maybe a history book. I don't know. Jeez. If I could take 10 books, you know what I mean? I, could, I would definitely take a couple of comics collections. I would probably take a, uh, you know, Eleven Rockets, whatever's the biggest one that I could get, you know. And I absolutely love the Gasoline Alley, the Walton Skeezix books that John and Corley publishes. They're just, yeah, I could go on, obviously, about them. I love them. They mean a lot to me, too, because skis, they're in real time. Every day is a yes. new day. And they accidentally, as my daughter was aging, and so it was like she turned a year old very close to when I read when I closed that book, and it just killed me. I just burst out crying. Not unhappy. I was just like, I was gratified. It's the only thing I can think of. What's yours? Answer your own question? I did. I've been asked it a couple times by guests. And yeah, I went more philosophical. I said, well, I'd probably take my copy of The Book of the Living and the Dying, which is like a take on the Book of the Dead, but it also helps you prepare for life and living. Oh, God. But, you know, like if it were a graphic novel or something like that. Yeah, you could take one, too. I'm letting. I'm letting. Oh, (laughs) that's hard, too. Wow. Because I'd probably pick something that's a a comfort of mine, like a favorite. Sure. Like some old Fantastic Four anthology. I was going to say, right, like Get the Omnibus? Yeah. The second one, maybe, because it's got – it's when they really kick into gear. Kirby really starts creating worlds just come out of his head, and Stanley gives him worlds of words. But Yeah, I could read those over and over again. So, yeah. FF, that's my thing. Spider-Man and FF were my two favorites for different reasons. I guess, I mean, if you want to get into it, the FF was a family. I know people stress that heavy, but that really did help. It was really cool. They just got along for the most part. But I love those comics. They're just they're great escapist comics. I still love them. I don't know when I'm going to get the chance to go back and read all the books I've kept. I, I keep thinking someday I will. Uh, I don't know when. I just keep moving forward with other books that I have on my list to read, and I've been plowing through a lot lately. Whenever I see pictures of the office or studio of other cartoonists or of artists or writers, I just start looking at their shelves. <laughs> and one, I want their books, and two, I'm just jealous that they have so many bookshelves. I don't know. It's like <laughs> I dream of bookshelves now, you know? Books and bookshelves are all I want. Gosh, you were saying, I'm sorry, but no, you, no, that, that's are you right. anything in particular. Are you holding off anything in particular in terms of reading books? Yeah. Do you have a book that you just like you keep putting off as if it's like a dessert that you really want to jump on? I have next in queue. I've been meaning to read this. I even told a guest I'm going to read this real soon. I have a copy of Scalped Volume One right hmm. across me that I want to start probably tonight because I just finished off some other books that I had piles of that I was trying to go through and get caught up with a lot of things I had to read. So that's what I'm going to start next. I'm reading something called The Island That Disappeared, but I can't get to it because I'm too tired and it's I need something light right before I go to bed. You know, England colonizing part of Central America and this island colony that failed. It just I, I'm fascinated by cultures. Flops are a fascinating thing, if you know what I mean. You know, movie flops, business flops, um, 
towns that disappear, all urban legend type stuff. It's pretty amazing how venal people are, but it's entertaining in its own way just to see how something rises and falls. It was funny you had mentioned Berlin during our conversation, and I just finished off volumes one and two this nice. week. <laughs> Yeah, I I stopped reading it years ago because I just knew there was going to be books one day. And I was buying it off the racks. You know, what is it, 20-something years? Yeah. Bless him for getting that done, Jason. Lutz, I don't know him. I met him once. So, but yeah, that's amazing. I can't imagine being able to get your teeth into a project like Love and Rockets or Gasoline Alley and just seeing it through. And you know what I mean? Just creating this world. I don't have the spine for that, or the brain maybe, I don't know. But I love that. Direct from this one person. And, you know, it's like what Kirby did, you know? Just things came out. And I love that. I have another hypothetical question. This one's fairly easy. If a toy company were to make an action figure of you, okay, what would be your accessory or accessories? My wife and my kid. Is that allowed? Yeah. Sarah and Alice. And, uh, oh, and our cat. Okay. And um, maybe two little milk and cheese toys, the ones that we made. Okay. That makes sense. And a TV and uh, a truck with an air streamer and a lot of comics. (laughs) A long box to sit on. You know, a bunch of long boxes done as a uh, chair, like the Eltonville joke. All the long boxes make the furniture in the comic store. Yeah, my family. Well, that's what I'd like if they were making it for me. I don't know what anybody else would like, but... I wouldn't want to be lonely action figure. <laughs> my family. Uh, or just cats. Yeah, my cats. They should be with us too. That's an odd question. I, you know, uh, someone brought it up during an interview once about if I were an action figure, I would want this. And I was like, oh, well, that's a good question to ask anybody. If you were an action figure, what would be your accessory? And some people are practical. They say, oh, it's my laptop. But others are like, oh, I'd have a sword or something, you know, like something fun. You could have a sword in real life. You don't need an action figure to have a sword. That's true. Yes, I don't know. You know, it would be cool if maybe I had a Gengar or something like that, some ridiculous thing like that, or a Godzilla suit, if you're going to go dopey, (laughs) which is fine by me. Holy crap. Yeah, I could probably come up with a lot of answers for that one. That's so weird. Oh, that's funny. This one's not too weird. It's very simple. What is your beverage of choice when you're resting and relaxing? Uh, Lately, it's been Pepsi. I used to be a Coke fiend. Not that kind. Jeez, I don't believe that. (laughs) I love soda. I know it's not good for me, but, you know, I did a strip about when I used to steal soda in camp. At some point, Coca-Cola just stopped being good. I just stopped liking the taste of it, my wife and me. I really like all kinds of sodas, but I can't afford, you know, interesting sodas or anything like that. So Pepsi on sale. When I'm not drinking Pepsi, I'm drinking water, sometimes apple juice, sometimes blood if I have just flossed. I don't know why I thought of that. I drink blood. I've got a Pepsi I finished right here. <laughs> then final question. Ooh. What question have you never been asked in an interview? Something people don't know about you, but you would like them to know. <sighs> Holy crap. That was the first moment of silence during the interview. <laughs> I think that's the first moment of silence during any interview I've ever done. <laughs> Since Tom Spurgeon and I, we talked for 13 hours once. Wow. Uh, well, we were punching each other at the time. It was pretty amazing. Very War of the Gargantuas. No, it wasn't. <laughs> Tom's great. Uh, I, you've really got me in a figure four headlock mentally with that one. Wow. What would I like people? I was thinking, well, that I'm not as messed up as people think I am, maybe. But then I was like, what if that's not true? <laughs> How do I gauge that? <laughs> you know, or that I never met 
to be a bastard to people back in the day. I really didn't. I think maybe it was that. I mean, I'm always apologizing to people I run into at signings uh, locally. Uh, if they go, hey, I remember you from Jim Hanley's or the Red Spot, which is a, a punk new wave club that I worked at. And, they, and I'm like, well, I apologize for the way I acted at Hanley's. And you probably owe me money for the free drinks I gave you at the Red Spot because uh, I didn't know how to make a drink. And if I had to, I was a bar back and I cleaned up. But if I had to make a drink, I just went vodka crazy. You know, I was like, you've got a lot of vodka in this. I, it's not good. But you're going to be happy. Tip your bartender before you fall down. It sounds stupid and weepy, but I really do think hard about trying to become a better person. And it's frustrating that it doesn't work as much as I wanted to, that I'm trying to be more mindful about things since I met Sarah, since I had a child, since I've calmed down in a lot of ways. Gosh, I really don't know. It's almost sometimes I want to, there's certain people who I wish they'd get it that I love comics because they really think I don't uh, because I'm very critical about things. But I think you can love something and still be critical of it. You know, the, the country, the people, world, uh, movies, television, yourself. Well, I don't love myself, but you know what I mean. I don't have patience with bullshit, especially if I'm the one bullshitting. We have this propensity in comics, especially, to not be criticized, uh, that it's mean, even if it's not personal or trying to be mean, you know, like we're all supposed to be friends. Um, that the stores can criticize the books, but the uh, artists can't criticize one another or in a nice way, you know, but it, not even a nice way. God, I'm going nowhere with this. I have no idea. Holy shit. Uh, I've apologized to myself for the shoplifting I used to do. I doubt any of those people are listening. I have no idea, man. Um, okay, here's the thing. I know I talk too much. I really don't want to. I have an illness that makes me talk. I cannot stop talking. That's all right. I like to defeat it. I'm not in love with the sound of my own voice. I'm really not. Maybe that's what I should have said. But I can't stop vomiting the words out. I'm a complex individual. Christ. <laughs> Evan, thanks so much for being on Creator Talks. <laughs> thanks for having me. Now, folks, that was my abbreviated conversation with Evan Dorkin. We talked for quite a while. He is a great guest, a great conversationalist. And I hope to have him back on the show at a later date because there's so much more we can talk about. And speaking of which, I do have more of our conversation. I do have some bonus content right after the closing credits, right after the music. A little interruption that I had during the podcast where I had to go and save someone. And that's coming up shortly. Coming up next week, Chris Flick. He's the creator and cartoonist of Capes and Babes and also a graphic designer. I'm going to pick Chris's brain for some knowledge and wisdom that he's gained over the years through his education and his career and get some tips about tabling at cons. But until then, spread the word about the podcast and please, if you have a moment, leave a rating or star review on iTunes. It goes a long way to help the show. It's available on Google Play, Stitcher, Android, and Amazon devices through Alexa. That's all for this week. I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. Until next time. Can you hang on for just one second? Yeah, no problem. Is your kid on loose? It'll just take one minute. Don't worry about it. I'm, not I'm a cartoonist. What do I have to do? <laughs> okay, I'll be right back. I will now sing the Paula Betsian dance from some opera. I'm drawing now. It's very, it's very interesting. You should, you'd love it if you saw it. Here we go. No problem. No problem. Okay. Very <laughs> Did you find your kid? I'm good. Good.
Good. No, no, no problem. You know, <laughs> I sang while you were out. You, no, you'll I, love it. I, yeah, you'll love it. My wife came in. And she's, uh, she's like, I need you. I'm like, I, I'm, on the, I'm on the phone, I'm on the phone. And then she's like waving at me. I'm like, what is it? She goes, Declan's leg is stuck in the crib. Oh, no. I run in and she can't get his knee through. Just in the slat. So I said, Just okay. like a Terry Funk in a cage match here or something oh, like that. I've, I've never seen, if he, if he can find a way to hurt himself. So I said, all right, let's turn him on his side where his knee bends. <laughs> out he goes. Can do it. Yeah. <laughs> but he was freaking out. Get me some hot water. A scalpel, blowtorch, <laughs> boil hot water. Several dogs. One time when I was a kid, I was you know, we had uh, radiators in the house, not central air, and sure. I was running my hand up and behind the um, radiator, and I got my arm stuck. As you do, yeah. <laughs> and uh, my brother-in-law, he once got his head stuck in the railings on the steps. It's like, how do you? <laughs> you know, I mean, just the most bizarre stuff. Was he watching television over his parents' just shoulders and no. it was just a fascinating episode of Rawhide or something? I think he was just looking into the living room when people were talking and it's like, how did you do that? You know, and they feel stupid more than anything else. I know somebody whose father had some faculty issues and he was once watching his son walk up the street after he left the house and he followed so hard that he broke his cheek went through the window. His head went through the window. <laughs> had his nose right up to the window, kept watching strained to see him go and pow <laughs> i think that's as good as the uh, so what did you do behind the radiator you burned yourself well fortunately it was not hot that my parents just kind of like pulled it away from the wall and got it out it wasn't a big deal but thank god oh. it wasn't hot you know that no that's good but i thought i was ex- i was hoping at the end that you know you were like a lobster boy and then this doctor <laughs> came from somewhere and you know you guys fixed your hand and then you guys fought crime you know overseas that would have been a better story don't you think so you should tell it from now on and every time you do you owe me a nickel <laughs>